Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. There is so much content out there related to psychology and self-help and personal growth. There are well over 300 episodes of this podcast alone, for example. And as more and more content is created, it tends to become more and more complex, in part because people want to stand out in an increasingly crowded market. And this complexity can lead to a lot of confusion. For example, you might be asking yourself questions like, what should I be focusing on? Or maybe this smart person contradicted that smart person. Who should I listen to? Or to put it all simply, what really actually matters here? And it's that last question that we're going to be focusing on today. To help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing? I'm really good, Forrest, and I'm actually really happy that we're going to focus on this synthesis and essentializing of the fundamental question, what works, what matters, what helps? So I'm psyched. Yeah, same. And as a quick note, during this episode, we're mostly going to be focusing on big ideas rather than specific practices. There are a million great practices. We talk about them all the time on the podcast. And frankly, there would have been no way for us to talk about all of them. So I tried to boil it down into more big picture stuff. To start with, though, I want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer here, which is that everything that we talk about today is going to be situated and grounded in your individual context. And If there's a problem, if there's a challenge that affects a whole bunch of different people out there in the world, it's probably because that challenge is systemic in some way. If millions of people report the same kinds of issues, it's probably not because they're all just irresponsible and not thinking about things the right way and they just need to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever else. It's probably because we have systems that aren't supporting them in important ways. So, As we do a lot of generalizing throughout this episode, everything that we say is going to have an implicit if you can or if it works for you stapled in front of it. I personally have a weird reflection because I have a weird mind about how (laughs) every molecule of water is like every other molecule of water, more or less. Mm -hmm. But humans and other living things are individual. They're really different. And evolution itself proceeds with these three great engines, variation, selection, and replication. Well, without variation, there can't be evolution. And so anytime you think about people, you have to think in terms of a distribution. And the problem with language, and I see this all the time in the reporting of social science research, including in prestigious places like the New York Times, which I admire greatly, you know, as a journalistic enterprise that said, uh, men do X, or teenagers are not Y, or therapy works, (laughs) right? Anything like that is a generalization that's essentially about the average of a group of people that then gets generalized to all the members of the group. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of a intellectually complicated way of appreciating the fundamental importance of what you're saying. Which is, again, like you were saying, maybe just kind of in a complicated way to say that uh, people are different and different things are going to work for different people differently. And so even as we generalize throughout this episode, it's good to keep that in mind. So to let you know what we're going to be talking about, I basically went through a lot of the transcripts of the previous episodes that we've done, a lot of the uh, expanded notes. Shout out to the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash podcast that I put together for previous episodes. And I tried to kind of boil everything down into, I picked seven, I don't know why, there's something about odd numbers, seven habits of highly effective whatever. Anyways, seven big ideas that I think have kind of the, the biggest impact for the most people. And maybe most importantly for me, because it's my perspective, these are all things that have had a huge impact on me personally. They're things that I've just seen come up over and over again. So we're going to try to get through all seven of them. I'm going to actually set a little timer over here, and we're going to have a timer set for about 10 minutes, because these are all things that we've spent episodes on in the past and could easily spend a whole episode on. And we're just going to move through them. I'm going to offer them and then kind of ask for some reflection and commentary from Rick, and we'll kind of go back and forth and get through the episode that way. So how does it sound, Dad? It sounds really good, especially the timer. (laughs) It is always, always good to have a timer. 
And for just a little extra framing, because we talk about agency all the time on this podcast, right? In a way, these are just seven different ways that you can express your personal agency. They're all expressions of agency that are available to us. Because as we've talked about a lot on the show, and as we wrote about in our book together, Resilient, the big question over and over again is, what do you carry with you, right? Because alongside appreciating the influence of all of the context and all of our beautiful individuality, a major long-term goal of practice is to be able to increasingly just find contentment wherever you are, within reason, but more or less wherever you are. Because our circumstances change, there's a lot that we can't control, but what do we carry with us even so? So I'm going to start with the very, very first one, which is everything begins with the belief that things can get better. And then an important part of that is critically that you individually can grow and change. So dad, what do you think? You're right. That belief is absolutely important, even if it's kind of an implicit background point of view. In addition, though, I want to ask you a question for us. In addition to this cognitive aspect, the belief mm, that mm-hmm. you can make something happen, that you're a mm-hmm. cause rather than an effect, recognizing, of course, along the way that there are many things you can't make happen. Yeah. You're not delusional. Okay. I want to apply this and ask you about this with regard to, say, a hypothetical friend. Sure. So you've got a hypothetical friend. Your friend has a need. There's an opportunity also maybe that could help them. And there's a movement in you to help, all right? In that movement to assist them is probably some implicit belief that indeed you can be efficacious. You can make a difference. But along with that cognition, what else is present in terms of emotion, pro-social emotion, mm-hmm. motivation, and if we do the thought experiment in which we apply this to others, then we can work backwards and apply yeah. it to ourselves. Yeah, I, I think that what I would say about this is that for all of these things that I say, there are going to be layers and complexities and, and so on attached to them that are that are legitimate and are useful. And I understand how a word like belief can have an association that's about this is a thought that I'm having about this. And so I appreciate what you're what you're saying, really, because you're talking about taking a slightly more holistic stance with it, that it's a cognitive belief, but it's also a quote-unquote embodied belief. Or, hey, maybe to use the conventional language, a feeling that we have. We feel like we could do the thing and believe it in addition to thinking that we can do the thing. And then often what becomes motivating for people are all of those emotional components. Like That's where the motivation comes from. But let's say, if we flip it around and we say, well, what if this person was really motivated emotionally? They really cared about their friend. They really uh, wanted, had a kind of empathic attunement to them. They wanted them to feel better, all of these different aspects. But underneath it all, they really didn't believe that they could actually do anything to improve the situation. Well, would they would they try to help or not? Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. I think that they would probably be less effective in their in their attempts to to support them. So I think you're pointing to just the fact that like it's a yes and situation, that you kind of need both. And it's when we have both, whether it's in support of ourselves or support of somebody else, that the magic really starts to happen for people a lot of the time. So to add an additional and also. Yeah, please. So I'm, act- I'm a listener right now to the podcast. I'm listening to you and then, and then <laughs> listening, which I think is you know recommended. I'm imagining how this is for me. Okay. And I want to yeah. ask you about this other case mm-hmm. in which whether it's your friend or yourself, there's an attitude of commitment. You're mm, for mm-hmm. them. You're loyal to them. So I, I wonder if there's almost an even more fundamental stance that's mixed in here in which you're on your own side, something we've talked about a lot. You're for totally. yourself. You're on your own yeah. side. You're treating yourself like you matter in a fundamental way. And then on the basis of that, you develop more of a sense of agency in part because you realize that, hey, that sense of agency is good for me to acquire mm. But the Mm -hmm. prerequisite for that Mm -hmm. is an even more prior stance of a kind of an emotional commitment to your own well-being. Yeah, I think that what I'm seeing, Dad, and what you're saying is that there are some things that I just kind of assume that might not actually be true. And that's always really interesting, right? Because I think I start with the belief that we can change things for the better because I'm operating from an assumption that somebody wants to change things for themselves for the better. 
and maybe out of a out of a long history of clinical work, being with a lot of people in the room, your experience is really well. There are some people who maybe don't want to do that because they don't really feel like they're worthy of it in some yeah. kind of way. They don't feel like they deserve positive change in that way or useful change. Whereas for me, that's like so so implicit and essential that yeah. it doesn't even like occur to me in that way. So I think that you're foregrounding something that's important here that I was just kind of taking for granted. Yeah, I think we ought to do an episode for us sometime on some number X of things that blew my mind as a therapist. Yeah, and yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, partly because I came in naively, you know, yeah. as an ignoramus. But one of them, I would absolutely <laughs> say that probably about half the people I saw in a clinical setting, this is typically the worried well, not even the most extreme type situations, but probably about half of them at a deep level were not on their own side. And these were people typically who could function in jobs. You know, they were having families. You know, they were they were okay. They were functional. You wouldn't really know this about them until you really inquire. And you would discover that they cared a lot about other people's suffering, but they were sort of indifferent to their own. Mm. Other people mattered immensely to them. They did not matter that much to themselves. And my well-meaning early interventions, you know, to be helpful just fell on deaf ears, or more exactly, the pilot light was out. You know, I was giving them a lot of gas, let's say, but there was no pilot light, so nothing happened in the furnace as a result. And then I realized, mm -hmm. oh, this is where we have to start. And it's poignant, actually. I don't think, I think all children are born on their own side. They're motivated to experience pleasure, avoid pain, make connections. They're motivated and then over time, life happens, including a sense of learned helplessness. Maybe that's a way of putting it. I think if you have a sense of just learned helplessness, it's hard to be on your own side, right? So maybe I was wrong. Maybe sense of agency precedes <laughs> <laughs> getting on your own side. And that's a, that's the, the chicken, chicken and the egg. egg of this whole thing, right? Like, is it the, does, yeah. does the action come first or does the emotion come first? I don't know. Maybe like oh, maybe man. they happen at the same time. It's, both it's really are hard good. to Both this. are good. Yeah, both, both are okay. good, right? How do we develop self-efficacy? Well, we we did a whole episode on this, so I'm mostly going to bow in the direction of that yes. episode right now, and also because we're wandering toward the end of what our stopwatch time over here. I know we're, we're we're already hitting the buzzer. What wow. I would say over and over again for people is that what really matters is something you've talked about a ton, Dad, which is just having a learning curve. Yeah. And in order to have a learning curve, we do need to believe that we can learn. So that's a very you know call that a growth mindset, call it whatever you want. That's a very essential stage of the process. But then a lot of other stuff comes in. These are things like mastery experiences that we talked about in the self-efficacy episode or good modeling. Like you see other people who you can experience as being somewhat like you in some important way doing this task. That's why representation is particularly important a lot of the time. Yeah. Then there are a bunch of cognitive strategies. This comes from stuff like CBT, uh, positive self-talk, reframing negative thoughts. You identify the, the pathogenic belief and you get in there and you try to mess around with it. All of that good technical stuff that is important, but is going to be the purview of other episodes of this podcast or maybe other podcasts entirely. So those are all things that can be really helpful for people. I think for me, there's always been an aspect of it that is about having a process orientation, a focus on the process itself as opposed to like an outcome from it. Honestly, in real time, I, I've had a difficult day and you know some of the details about something I had to deal with. And your point there about process orientation is actually really helpful to me in real time. I'm glad. To realize that things are in process, I need to focus on process, <sighs> I'm in process too, but we're in process. So thank you. Earlier in the conversation, you said something like appreciating the things that you can't change. Yeah. Understanding that we can't have self-efficacy in all situations, right? And that's why my second point, getting on to the second one here, is that acceptance supports agency. Whoa. And that acceptancy is actually a form of agency. And this is the ability to be with what is. What is could be our personal history. We talk about forming a coherent narrative of the things that have happened to us. This could be accepting a circumstance that you can't change in some way and being able to be present with it, including if it's unpleasant. 
And this is drawn in part from maybe my favorite quote from Carl Rogers, which is, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. And this balance really comes up over and over again in psychology. And perhaps it comes up a lot because it's really tough for us to to wrap our minds around and kind of come to peace with. And I'm wondering, again, reflections from your time of practice with people as a, as a therapist, Dad, how have you seen this come up and how have you seen people be able to kind of like come to grips with this balance of accepting the way that things are so that you can then aspire in better and better ways, which can sound a bit counterintuitive to people? Well, my painful admission is that most of my careers in which I was doing a lot of therapy with people, which I've kind of wound down over the last year or two, is that my orientation a lot was fairly focused, I won't say a medical model, but one in which there is suffering, there is a problem, there is something that's blocking a person. Okay, we're here to fix it. And in all that was, of course, a certain amount of realism about what's not changing or what is irrevocable, like let's say the loss of a friend, that person's not coming back. But I wasn't yet informed through the work of people like Stephen Hayes or some of the more mindfulness-oriented therapies that really, really, really foreground acceptance. And also it's my nature. That said, I can think of numerous clinical examples, Forrest, in which what you're saying is profoundly true, Mm. including in two ways that really stand out. One is for people to accept themselves as they are. And it's an acceptance that might start as purely neutral, kind of a Spock-like objective view of oneself, but it starts actually becoming, dare I say, tender, Mm. heartfelt, Mm -hmm kind, sweet, like you accept a child, you accept your child as they are in a frame of a lot of uh, nurturance and cherishing. So there can, there can be that those qualities start to slip in. And it's not that when you accept yourself, you're suddenly going to become a lazy slacker. It's that you quit riding yourself so hard you know, my dad, your grandfather grew up on a ranch and so forth. And I just think about some riders of horses. They don't accept the nature of their horse. So they're constantly struggling with the nature of the horse. Skillful riders go with the nature of the horse and then gently guide the horse in a context of accepting the horse as they are. Mm-hmm. We, we're each like a horse, you know, and then the being is like a rider. So that's part one. And I've seen that a lot. And for a lot of people, it would become almost teary you know, Mm -hmm. and some of what they were dealing with were all the people who did not accept them as they are, as they were back then. Mm -hmm. So that's part one. A second one, I've seen this a lot clinically, is to help people realize that if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, eats like a duck, and burps like a duck, you got to accept that it's a duck. And instead, lots of people are still trying to get blood from a stone or cheese from a tunnel that doesn't contain any. And there's something really poignant. It can have a quality of disenchantment, which in the Buddhist contemplative tradition is actually a valued quality of kind of waking up from the enchantment, the spell, where you realize, wow, you're just never going to love me that way. Or, Mm. wow, you're just not going to change as a friend you care about who's drinking too much or an adult kid who's drinking too much. You realize, wow, or I'm just never going to, this business, just on this corner, this restaurant is never going to thrive. And we can struggle heroically, but it's just never going to succeed. There's a kind of acceptance of that kind that also can have a lot of wisdom in it. Maybe it's accompanied by a certain amount of resignation or grief initially. But then when you finally go, wow, you're just always going to do that, mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I better wake up and kind of see reality here. So yeah, those two kinds of acceptance. What do you make of that? Well, that's a totally real part of it, for sure. And to me, acceptance is just a form of clear seeing mm. and disenchantment or the there's a yeah. root word for it and Pali, which is the language of early Buddhism. One of the one of the other ways to translate is is essentially as a form of clear seeing. Because you're you're having insight into the nature of reality. 
basically. You're seeing a thing for what it is. And it's only when we see things for what they are that we can actually change them, right? If we're if we have essentially deluded ourselves into believing that things are some other kind of way, we're never going to be able to really affect them in the ways that we want to, because we're always going to be basing our actions off of assumptions that aren't true. And so that clear saying is just like so essential to the whole thing. I just want to also mention here, acceptance can feel great. Acceptance can feel awesome. Yeah. Because you can accept some really beautiful part of yourself that you pushed away for a long time. Ah, that's lovely. Yeah. Are you, are you, I mean, there's so many positive things you can accept from time to time that, that pop up that still people have blocks around. Maybe you'd be willing to give an example of sure. something recently that's positive maybe, Ooh. that you've accepted in yourself. And I'll give you time to think, but I'll just name one quickly for myself. I have this quality in me of a kind of childlike, innocent, seeing the best. And it's gotten me into trouble because it has led me not to recognize certain aspects and certain people that were, in fact, not trustworthy. But still, you know, I don't want to give up that part of myself. (laughs) I think it probably needs a little bit of adult supervision, but (laughs) I'm accepting it. How about you? This is going to relate to something that I'm going to talk about in a point a little later. A lot of happiness and well-being, I think, comes back to our relationship with our wants and needs. So one of the things that people often have to accept about themselves is like, what do they actually want? What do they actually feel like they truly need deep down? And just when we talk about this kind of material, it often feels very emotionally evocative to me. And we often do a lot of stuff to legislate that out of ourselves, I think, mm. socially. And that's something that I have I have increasingly accepted and seen about myself is that I have an appreciation for like that tenderness that can come with this kind of call it what you will, like psychology work, personal growth work. Ah. And you know, and it's helped me sort of orient mm. down as opposed to living purely in the more like cognitive thought-driven world. Yeah. And I think for a long time I kind of avoided that because the emotions associated with it were pretty raw and pretty visceral. And as I've gotten more just sort of open with my own interior, it's just helped me like live there more often because you empty the the bucket of tears around it, you get used to it, it stops to have the like intense emotional sting that it had initially. I don't know if that really makes sense, but that was just sort of what came to mind for me. You know, I've thought a lot about childhood and mm. generally, <laughs> and also the ways in which we're socializing our wants and Mm. helping children to appreciate that certain kinds of desires are problematic. Other kinds of desires are really good. They feel good in the moment and often, and also they produce good results for oneself and others. And so we help people to appreciate that certain desires are important. And in part to me, you're talking about the desire to be vulnerable, the desire to be open, the desire to be intimate, the desire to be real, including all your layers, and to appreciate over time that that was a really good thing and to learn over time how to want it and to disengage mm. from the parts of me that originally did not want it, you know, yeah, yeah, full speed. Totally. So you're kind yeah. of talking about that, learning yeah, to absolutely. want this kind of depth and openness and in appropriate ways, not like you're spilling your guts in the boardroom, but when it is appropriate, really valuing it mm-hmm. and accepting that fact that you yeah, value totally. it. Yeah. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. 
Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. All right, so the third idea here is be thoughtful about what you're consuming. And maybe another way to put this is what are you taking in and what are you letting go of? I really like the word consuming. There's something about it that feels very like visceral to me. and One of the things that I like about it is that we have associations with it around eating or drinking. And yeah, that can be a thing that we can be thoughtful about, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later. But really, consuming applies across domains. And what we get out of our minds and bodies is correlated to what we put into them. And just as important as what a person eats or drinks is where you place your attention and the people or the interactions, the general vibes that you surround yourself with. The emotional experiences that you take in become just as much a part of you as the food that you eat. And so for me, this has become really about evaluating the environments that I choose to spend time in, which include the people and places that I spend time around, the hobbies that I pursue. And I've been doing a lot of asking myself whether or not these situations are supporting the the more positive emotional experiences that tend to lead to better mental health outcomes or if they're supporting the version of myself that I really want to be out in the world and internally as well. And so that focus on like, what am I consuming? What am I consuming on just a daily basis has been really helpful for me. Where am I placing my attention over and over and over again? And is there a way for me to see clearly or accept, use your language of choice, where I'm currently placing my attention? Go, huh, evaluate it objectively, be like, do I want to be consuming this? And then if the answer is no, feel like I can turn more toward what I want to be paying attention to or what I want to be consuming. That's where all the self-efficacy part of it comes in. You remind me of the traditional saying that our mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. And my neurologically updated version of that would be attention is like a spotlight in a vacuum cleaner. It illuminates what it rests upon while sucking it into your brain. Mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. if what you're resting it on is negative, given the brain's negativity bias. There's another version of that that is really interesting in Buddhist ethics called guard the sense doors, where you give thought to what moves into your eyes, your hear, your ears, your hearing, tasting, smelling, and also thinking. You're, you're, you're paying attention to that. To me, that does not mean to solve one's own issues over here by restricting the behavior of others over there. It also means to really rest your attention on what's wholesome and beneficial. Mm 
right? Mm. And the nuance there is to allow yourself with acceptance to fully feel everything. And also, when there is volition, do you let it invade your mind and remain? You don't have to. Do you feed it and fuel it? You don't have to. And when you have the opportunity for volitional control of your attention, so it's not entirely shocked or sucked into or preoccupied with or having to deal with something or other, oof, where do you direct it? Essentially, if you can't regulate your attention, you cannot regulate who you are or who you are becoming. What's really been particularly interesting to me over the last little while that I can think of is getting a little more attentive to the habitual patterns that I have around how I think. And that the thoughts that we have can be a kind of consuming over and over again, right? We don't necessarily think about it that way, but that's how it feels to me. It's like what I'm taking in in my in my underlying experience over and over. And so a huge part of that is the letting go part, right? There are these like stories that I've told myself over and over again about the way something is or the way that another person is or the way that a thing has to be. And you can just get this moment that I, I don't really know why it happens for somebody or it doesn't happen, where you just are able to get some space around it. And you're able to finally relax about it in some kind of a meaningful way. And that letting go can be just as important as all of the taking and aspects of it. You know, there's a great line, essentially, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll be completely happy from mm. Ajahn Chah. And I, myself, uh, am tenacious to a fault. And so I've had to really learn when we let go. And it's so interesting for us that the letting go, of course, relates to both acceptance and agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah? yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. Letting go is an agentic act, and you have to accept that you know you need to let it go. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things is, of course, what's hard to let go of that we kind of hold on to. And mm. it might be problematic desires. And then I think there's a letting go around certain kinds of forms of drivenness. And mm-hmm. in other words, where you just start to realize that a kind of intensity that's goal-directed is just creating a lot of collateral damage, you know, for mm. you and other mm-hmm. people. And you just say, you know, either I'm going to hold that more lightly, I know we'll talk about aspirations down the road, but where you just just let go of the fixation on the outcome. Mm. Like you said earlier, I think, process orientation. That's another kind of letting go. Yeah. 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 And then with that, just the bodily expression. I was so constricted when I landed in early adulthood and the letting go in your body where you exhale or your your hands soften. I had to have people in therapy and otherwise do a little exercise where they hold an object in their hands. Imagine what it's something that you've been really holding on to, including a position around which you've gotten righteous. I know about that. And then you just let it go. Mm. Just that act of release, letting it go. Yeah, that's great. Great stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more. We've got to come to the end of that one for right now. Yeah. Fourth one, really simply, and we probably won't spend a ton of time here, take care of your body. Yeah. Physical health is the foundation of mental health. Now, the issue with physical health is that there's a lot of disagreement about how exactly we could best be physically healthy. There's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of bad information out there. But I think that you can boil it down to a couple of things that I've seen somewhere between 95 and 99% of people agree on. Yeah. And those things are, and this is four or five things, depending on how you want to count them. First, if you can, eat real food. The if you can part is important. The eat real food part is important. No room for phony food, huh? Oh, you can have some phony food in there occasionally. <laughs> I mean, I, I eat protein powder. You could argue that that's, that's kind of a phony, phony food. That's real well, protein you know, powder. It's, yeah, but it's been like <laughs> blended down. It's in a kind of, it's, it comes in a, a carton. Oh, you know, funny. it doesn't exactly look like it. I uh, like it arose from the earth naturally because, you know, it didn't. It's based on real stuff, but still, that can be like a useful nutritional supplement. Because, of course, I'm on Twitter. And I'm consuming Twitter. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. You know, For better or worse, you're consuming Twitter, Dad. You want to take a look at that. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I saw this thing that linked to a graphic that averages across different countries the percentage of the calories consumed in that country from highly manufactured foods. Yeah. That's the notion. Highly manufactured foods, and then you see a range, okay? So interestingly, 
in, uh, for example, part of it was that in the more Mediterranean countries like Italy, pretty low on highly manufactured foods. Britain, sorry folks, the UK, it was like well over 50% highly manufactured foods. You've said that America kind of runs on fast food. Cheap, easy calories, for sure. I mean, you can make a real argument that a lot of our economics are based on the availability of cheap calories. Just think about the number of jobs that exist out there where people literally cannot afford to feed themselves on something other than the cheapest, most broadly available calories. And that's where you start to factor in all of this other stuff that I was talking about in the beginning, about context, if you can, if it's available. And it's also why we don't generally talk too much about nutrition on the podcast, because so many of these issues have absolutely nothing to do with personal choice and everything to do with the way that our broader systems are set up in this country and in many countries around the world. Like lower income, food deserts, things like that. The whole thing. That being said, you know, if you can, it's generally good to eat real food. The other things that I would say, improve sleep quality. If you can, different people need different quantities of sleep, but we all need good sleep quality. And one of the ways that we can improve sleep quality the best is simply by framing sleep as an important activity that we do throughout the day as opposed to a thing that we have to do at the end of the day. And that's been really helpful for me personally, actually. Third one, I'm trying to be better about this one, move throughout the day. And then if you can, most days do some kind of deliberate physical activity. Again, what this looks like, it's all about what's accessible to you. I do weight training. I love weight training. It's been consistently shown to be one of the highest positive impact forms of physical activity, but not everyone's going to have access to that for a whole bunch of different reasons. So if you can, some kind of deliberate physical activity. That's really great. And I just want to acknowledge from a standpoint of inclusivity, there are a lot of people who are on their feet all day. Yeah, totally. But if you're like me and you spend a lot of time sitting and typing, yeah, getting up, moving around as best you can. And those are sort of the simple common sense things, just four things that over and over again, people say, hey, these are the things that really matter when you boil it all down. And what's really kind of shocking to me, and I wonder if you have any kind of a take on this, Dad, is how we've managed to take those four things and turn them into billions of dollars of complex information where there's this like massive emphasis on finding these fine details between option A versus option B without a lot of clarity on what the meaningful, you know, increment of value from that massive amount of effort the person is putting in and the fine detail. Do you know what I mean? I think the root problem really is people who are alienated from their bodies and societies that are alienated from the earth. When people are attuned to their own bodies and they have an appropriate kind of stewardship and cherishing related to their body, then there's a natural movement in the ways you describe. Mm -hmm. Similarly, and especially cultures that are grounded in the earth, then they tend to live in more natural ways Sleep cycles become more natural. There's less of a frenetic drivenness. But when people in a culture, in a society, are kind of in a more sustainable rhythm, there's less of an orientation of kind of a rapacious exploitiveness of their natural resources. I think that tends to move them into a simpler, more natural, as you say, orientation toward eating and sleeping, moving and strengthening. And building on something you've said before as we, as we close out this topic, pick one thing. Do one yeah, thing different. love that. Yep, mm-hmm. atomic habits type stuff. Pick one thing different. Do one thing differently. Yeah, and that can become a kind of snowball rolling down a hill here. So you were talking a second ago about being more or grounded in, grounded in our relationships and in the earth and all of that good stuff. And that gets to the fifth point for me, which is to put it simply, we're all in this together. Mm. So do everything that you can to develop strong social connections and appreciate the impact and complexity of those social connections. One of the the most consistent findings in the research on mental health broadly is that, hello, having friends is nice, but it really extends a lot more deeply than that. There are things like the, the Kauai Longitudinal Study, which showed that for underprivileged youth, even just having like one meaningful relationship with an older, stable person that it had a massive impact on that person's outcomes over the course of their life. Just one. 
And what we're seeing a lot now is this epidemic of loneliness in different kinds of ways, right? It's often hard to do a lot about that, but at the same time, it's really important to do what we can because we're very social creatures. We're built to operate in small groups around 10 to 50 people. And on top of all of that, so much of what we focus on in the podcast and so much of what you've written about, Dad, is how to build stronger, healthier relationships with other people. Yeah, and the how, man, isn't that the word in the sentence? The how, right? To take these good ideas. I think it's interesting, too, that there are people who are naturally highly relational. Others, like me, who are not naturally that way, have had to kind of learn and really appreciate how valuable relationships are. So then the question is the how. And I really wondered a lot. And you know, my recent book's about making great relationships, right? 50 practices. So yeah, 50 things we can do. But boy, I'll just tell you two of them that I've just seen a lot, okay? One is to receive the other, listen, give them their room, let them have their say. That aspect where... You just give them room to breathe. You slow it down. And so then they get to have the experience of feeling heard, or to borrow a phrase from Dan Siegel, feel felt. Mm -hmm. That, the receptive aspects, that's something we can do that would make a big difference. Like I think in a lot of our our interactions, including that that are troubled, if we just, for example, increased the delay between them finishing what they say and you starting what you say by one or two seconds. Just that, to slow it down, to kind of let it land inside would make a huge difference. Okay, that's my number one. A second one, in terms of expression, is to soften your tone. Mm. I just think partly because of the negativity bias, there's so many ways in which we drop some kind of tone into the space that's just a little... It's a little exasperated, it's a little righteous, it's a little peremptory, and it just doesn't need to be there. We can still stand up for ourselves, we can still have discernment, and you can just tell if you were to play out the kind of the chess game back and forth or the moves back and forth in an interaction, that when that tone gets dropped in, it's not going to improve the interaction typically, and it often will worsen it. On the other hand, if that tone got left out, whoosh, the interaction could proceed in really positive ways. When I started paying a lot of attention to tone, I was shocked by how irritated and bossy I sounded. (laughs) But at the time, uh, and then I just started to realize, no, I I just don't there are times where I I just think about, like if you had a recorder going during an interaction and and you played it back, you would just be shocked at how you sounded. Yeah. I think for myself, yeah. how like I sounded inside of an interaction, just how many times that happens if we're able to truly reflect on it in that way. Well, I have another one I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, it's going to be a little cosmic, but okay. So this is about improving our relationships. And a lot lately, I've really been reflecting on the understandable fact that much of the time we focus on what we're receiving from other people. Okay, and we want we want more or less of this or that. But what about what we're broadcasting, what we're transmitting, what we're expressing? And lately I've started to just be amazed, and I'm exploring it still, by the fact that the expressing of warm-heartedness in various authentic ways protects and feeds us as it flows through us. Wow, that is very soothing and healing and it fills you up including in places inside that have felt empty due to lacks of social supplies from other people yeah and one of the most important skills that we develop in relationship i think relates to the next thing that i wanted to talk about sixth point which is identify accept and learn how to manage your wants and needs Hmm. becoming somebody who can meet the needs of other people with some degree of authenticity and consistency, is maybe the most important skill that exists in relationships. Getting good at identifying your needs, what you really want from somebody else, what you can give yourself versus what you can only receive from other people. Whatever it is, so much of life is about managing these different wants and needs that come up. And often the skill is in differentiating between the uh, more positive or useful needs 
versus the more problematic needs or what you might call like craving-based needs, just desire in its sort of unfiltered form. It was really interesting. We did an episode pretty recently on identifying your wants and needs, and it did really well, surprisingly well. And it was just kind of shocking how many times we would get a comment before that episode aired. And of course, we still get them, but we did the episode based on these comments of somebody just saying, I feel like I have no feeling for my interior. Mm. Like I can't figure out what I really want from life or what I really desire because those desires have been, maybe they were punished in the past or or maybe I was never given the opportunities to explore them in healthy ways. And then- stapled onto that is that a lot of the time people have these desires that seem so obvious to them. Like we were talking to Sue Johnson and she was telling a clinical story about a uh, husband with his wife in the room. And over and over again, he was coming back to sex. He was like, she just won't have sex with me and I need more sex. And that's what I need. If I had more sex, all of my problems would go away. And you know, she, she, okay, took the deep breath and, rolled up the therapist's sleeves and dug in there with this guy. Um, And over time, what was kind of revealed is that for him, when he experienced that his partner actually loved him, actually wanted to support him, actually wanted to be there with him, when he felt cared for, was when and immediately after they had had sex. Yeah. That was it. That was the only time he felt that way. So you have this craving want surface one that was obscuring this deeper, profoundly understandable desire that this guy had to have this particular kind of relational need met. I I think that you can maybe argue that what really causes the most problems is misidentification of wants. You know, covering up our deeper wants with these problematic surface wants. That's really where the problems are coming from. Layered and clear. Okay, what's the next one? So final one, we've come to the end here. And this was me uh, to take you behind the curtain, trying to figure out a way to bring in all of the practical stuff. Because like the first six kind of set the field, right? And then it's like, wait a second, how are we actually going to do this? And I tried to capture all of that in one. And here's, here's my finessing of it, Dad. Let me know what you think. If you want to live a life of purpose, first, identify key values. Second, set goals related to those values. And then third, let those goals shape how you approach your life. Well, that's really practical. Now, let me kind of get this right. So a life of purpose. I I use deliberately fuzzy language there. Yeah. Um, What does it mean to have a life of purpose? And why should we have a life of purpose? Why should I make it my purpose to have a life of purpose? Love this. So I am non-judgmental about what constitutes a purpose. Okay. Here are some values that are meaningful to me these days. Yeah. It's two that are kind of co-emerging. And one of them I've been really focused on for a long time. The second one I've just kind of figured out more recently. First one, fulfillment. Big value for me. That's Mm. a meaningful value. Okay. And that's about me, my relationship with myself. You'll notice that my personal fulfillment is not like a big pro-social goal. It's about me. And so your life of purpose could be having a great time. That sounds pretty good to me. Then the second one that's been arising for me a lot recently kind of pulls on fulfillment a little bit, and it's contentment. And trying to get better and better about being with things just as they are without having to change them. Because a lot for a lot of my life, I think I've been trying to like influence my environments in ways that would feel better for me, as opposed to getting better at feeling okay in many different kinds of environments. Yeah. And maybe you can kind of transition at some point in life from trying to get the most out of it to just trying to kind of be with it. And that's the adventure that I've been on personally over the last couple of years, I think. And then those values, so we start with those values, and then you can set goals, clear goals related to those values of different kinds. And goals often come with this kind of implicit map about what we can do. Once we have a goal, we have an objective, we can sort of figure out, work backwards, how do we get there? And then that's where we get to the the third part, which is about letting those goals shape your day-to-day behavior, shape how you approach your self-development, your behavior out in the world, how you're actually doing stuff. And so I think that if you want to kind of boil down most of what we talk about on the podcast related to goals and goal setting and procrastination and how do I get motivated into one little summary thing, 
this is what I came up with. And now if you've got any edits for me, Dad, I'm very open to it because I'm, I'm actively workshopping this one. The way you said it, like goals, it sounded initially, oh, top down. But actually, a person can make it their goal to discover goals that emerge from the bottom up. Totally. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Great point. Totally within the frame of what you've been saying here. And and then when you talk about values, that's where we really start. I have to tell you that I think you're totally onto it. And values and establishing personal values and um, there's some kind of line, you know, a values-centered life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is one of the unsung and critically important left out themes, generally speaking, in clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. I remember going back to the dark ages, you know, before wheels were discovered, you know, like the 1970s. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Pre-internet, that fuzzy pre-internet time. And we would do values clarification processes that were really, really useful. What do you really care about? What, and what are your priorities, for example? So here's a weird exercise that I've done with myself. I'll just name it. People can do it experientially. You may have done it yourself already. Basically, write down a bunch of priorities in your life. And it's okay to language them however you want them, and maybe some of the categories mush together, or maybe you really want to tease apart certain key distinctions, right? So One priority is to have a six-pack abdomen, and another priority is to have big biceps, and another priority is to retire at age 60. And and you see what I'm saying? So it's okay if your priorities kind of are all over the place. All right, great. Now you have your list. Try to have at least seven, if not a dozen. And then rank order them in a forced choice kind of way. So you only get one, and you're... You're staring at the grave. You're staring at the abyss. You only get one. What's the one? Above all mm-hmm. else, that's the one. If you had to give up all but one, what's the one? It's a forced choice. Understand you want them all. Got it. But what's the one? All right, take it off the list. Now you have a list that's been reduced by one. All right. Of the group that's left, you only get one. What's the one in the group that's left? This is a really interesting exercise. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, me included, you start to realize that the items that are, you know, in the top three, often at least one of them, you're paying short shrift to. You're not doing anything toward it. It's important, but not urgent, that quadrant. And you just let it slide. And this kind of priorities exercise is a good wake-up call. Yeah, no, I think that's a great practice. And the... The aspect of it where you're forced to make decisions about what really matters to you. Because to your point, Dad, if you ask somebody to list their values, they could go on for pages and pages and pages. I have pages and pages and pages of values. But the truth is that if we're going to achieve our goals, live in alignment with different values, it's really helpful to have a sort of hierarchy feeling inside of yourself in terms of what really matters to you at the end of the day. And I can certainly say for myself that it's really changed over time. At the at the ripe old age of 35, you know, I've had so many different phases in my life here with what was really meaningful to me at that moment. And that's okay too. And just because you were pursuing one kind of value in the past doesn't mean you can't pursue a different kind of value in the future. And it doesn't mean that that spent time was wasted time. It was just part of your development as a person, part of your own individual path. Use whatever language you want to use here. Maybe you learned a lot along the way. And again, if we have that learning process orientation, then that time becomes valuable time in and of itself. Mm. And I think it's actually really a, a, a testament to a person if they're able to update how they how they view these things over time and go through a deliberate process, even on, say, a yearly basis. This can be a great activity to fold into a kind of New Year's process where you take a step back and ask yourself, how do I want this year to be a little bit different from the ones that came before? And what are some of the values that are increasingly meaningful to me these days? Yeah. And maybe supporting those values is going to make this year feel a little better. I really think it's an extremely important point. And one thing that I've seen is that as people move into middle age, they tend to get stagnant. You know, Eric Erickson talked about one of the challenges of middle age, especially late middle age, was, as he put it, generativity or stagnation. And 
It's one thing, by the way, to take a break, to go on sabbatical, to go fishing, whatever. You know, it's not that you're stagnant. It's that the field is lying fallow. But we all kind of know when we're starting to drift through the days. And they're okay. And we kind of work on our way to the weekend. And then, all right, we strap it on the next Monday morning and do it again. I've seen a lot of people who keep thinking that they're going to get to something that's important for them. But then the days turn into weeks, the weeks turn into years. You know, there's a limited number of days left. You know, the runway, the end of that runway is getting closer, right, every day, not to be morbid about it, but carpe diem. How do you want to use your days? Including, you know, you can get a zen, has <laughs> a fair amount of fierce statements about this, that life is fleeting, don't waste a single day, you never know when you'll withdraw your last breath, you know, boom, 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 you know, has that quality to it. Okay, <laughs> whatever's useful in that, you know, for you, yeah. cool, you know, good. I kind of look at it as in a spirit of profound gratitude, just gobsmacked by gratitude with this life. What an opportunity. What do you want to make of it? It's completely wild that over nearly 14 billion years, all these currents in the river of reality have flowed now and to give you this chance to be awake, to be mm -hmm. alive, to have a human body. Wow, what do you want to make of it? You know, it's not like a burden or a morbid preoccupation or some box you need to tick. It's more like, here you are on the game board. What do you want to do? Which includes, you're dealing with all this crud. Got it. That's where you are in the park. That's the ride you're on right now. Okay, I got it. How do you want to be about it? I really appreciated this episode with Rick, focused on simplifying self-help and really trying to boil down everything that we've talked about on the podcast, everything that I've personally learned about about self-help, personal growth, self-improvement, whatever you want to call it. And because the episode itself was a kind of summary, and this is the section where I normally summarize the episode, I'm going to just spend a little bit more time talking about the context of all of this and maybe going through each point individually and adding a little bit of extra information, maybe some different ways that I'm thinking about it with the benefit of a day or two of reflection from recording the episode to now when I'm recording this recap. One of the things that I really struggle with, with this podcast as a whole, is just the simple reality that we're giving generalized advice to people when the truth is that their specific context dictates so much of their mental health, their well-being, their happiness in life, just the, the luck of the draw, their unique circumstances, the whole thing. And we can't comment on any of that from the position that we have, you know, a thousand miles away maybe, recording a podcast that gets listened to by a lot of different people who all have their own individual circumstance. And along similar lines, so many of the problems that we face in life are very practical in nature. They're not theoretical. They're not these kind of constructs that we talk about on the podcast. They are very, very practical. The single greatest mental health challenge in the world, unquestionably, is poverty. Depression, anxiety, all of these things that we talk about on the podcast all the time are often due to a person's broader environment being depressing or being anxiety-provoking. It is normal to feel anxious when you are in a low-resource environment. Hello! It means that there is plenty to be scared about. And then alongside all of that, alongside the influence of circumstance, your unique situation, your unique conditions, the resources that you have available to you, all of these problems that are incredibly real, that frankly, I think that we spend just like way too little time talking about in the kind of self-help world, and, and we often reduce everything to just, oh, well, you know, just practice with it, or oh, just what happens inside of the mind. And it's like, no, these are real challenges that people face. And alongside all of that, a major long-term goal of practice is to do what we can to be a little bit better regardless of the circumstances that are surrounding us. To do what we can, what's under our control, to find contentment where we are. And in some places, that's going to be a lot harder than in others. In some moments in life, it's going to be really hard to find contentment. Maybe you're only able to move your experience from a two to a three. But that itself is a huge accomplishment. 
Because the reality is that the world is unreliable. People are inconsistent. Circumstances changed. We get tossed into a pandemic that we can do very, very little about because the truth is that getting through it is tied to other people's behavior and we can do very little to control that. And then the question becomes, what do you carry with you even so? And that's really what we were trying to explore today. To quickly run through the seven things that we talked about in the episode, we began with everything begins with the belief that things can get better and critically that you can grow and change over time. This is all the material related to self-efficacy and a growth mindset and really just all of the psychological frameworks that support us in applying effort consistently over time. It is really hard to apply our effort if we don't think it's going to do anything for us. So the big shift is believing that our effort matters, moving from an orientation on talent to an orientation on effort. Then the second point is that, look, in some situations, there is little that we can do to change them. But the truth is that acceptance itself is a form of agency, and acceptance is often what we need to start with before we're able to change. And this really speaks to a larger theme that we've explored on the podcast a lot, which is that growth is often found in this kind of joining of seemingly opposite ideas, like intimacy and autonomy, acceptance and change. We talk a lot on the podcast about bottom-up methodologies and top-down methodologies and how we can kind of bring them together in these various useful ways. You've got these seeming paradoxes, but When you work with both sides of the spectrum, you're often able to find a lot of growth. And for people who tend to err in one direction, their learning is often found in exploring the other more fully. And I've lived that big time in my own life. Then the third point is be thoughtful about what you're consuming. Or maybe a better way to put it, what are you taking in and what are you letting go of? And this gets to being really thoughtful about our environments, the people we're spending time around, the uh, pursuits that we're really engaged with, and just asking ourselves important questions over and over again, hey, is this truly meaningful to me? Hey, is this in my best interest? Hey, do I feel really good when I leave an interaction with this person? Those can be really powerful questions. And then fourth, take care of your body. This can get really complicated. We tried to make it as simple as possible. I think that this is truly an area where 95% of the value can be found with 5% of the effort or 5% of the thinking about it. And people have made a lot of money making this very complicated when most of the big points are relatively simple. Fifth point, we're in this together. Fifth big idea we explored, the importance of social connection. We're in this together. Do what you can to develop strong connections and appreciate the complexity of them and their impact on our lives. Because while the whole you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with thing is a bit of a radical oversimplification, the truth is that we are profoundly social creatures. And we were really kind of built for environments where we're surrounded by somewhere between 10 and 50 people on a regular basis. That's our group. And those groups have a profound impact on our behavior. People tend to adopt behaviors that are tolerated by the groups that we're a part of. So what does that mean? If you want to give up a behavior, find friends who don't do it. If you want to take on a behavior, find friends who do it. Now, of course, the practical reality of finding those friends can be pretty complicated, but it is absolutely a value and it's something very important that we should do what we can to pursue. Sixth, and this is a big one for me that I'm still exploring and trying to kind of figure out how to talk about, identify, accept, and learn how to manage our wants and needs. And people can err on either side here. They might be totally unable to identify their wants and needs. They might be pushing down their wants and needs. They might be denying their wants and needs. They might be saying, I'm just not the kind of person who needs anything. You know, whatever it is, whatever they've kind of gotten themselves to a place of thinking in order to push away more painful thoughts and feelings. Then, on the other hand, there are people who are fixated on their wants and needs, and they pursue them to the abandonment of all else in incredibly unhealthy and destructive ways. They are a prisoner to craving. And what we find here a lot of the time with people who are in that second category is that more important, deeper, more meaningful wants and needs are often covered over 
by more problematic surface level ones. And so the real question is, are we able to dig down to the bottom and really discover and uncover our true, deeper, almost always, in my experience, pretty healthy and understandable wants and needs, needs for connection, needs for relationship, needs to feel a a sense of meaning and purpose, to want to pursue a feeling of mastery over our lives. Whatever those wants and needs are for you, meeting our needs allows us to be more fulfilled and becoming the kind of person who can meet the needs of other people is just a critically important skill in our relationships. And that means getting comfortable with the reality that other people have needs and they're going to want things from us. And a lot of life is about managing both our needs and the needs of others in healthy ways. And then finally, I was trying to find something that would encapsulate all the material that we do on forming habits and setting goals and just the practical how-to of all of this stuff. And here's what I came up with. Seventh point, if you want to live a life of purpose, identify key values, set goals related to those values, and then let those goals shape how you approach self-development, shape how you approach your behavior each day, what you're actually doing. And Rick had a good point here, a good kind of question. Well, why why should I care about living a life of purpose, right? And for me, I'm pretty agnostic about what constitutes a good purpose here. It's really important that it be meaningful to you, and that's kind of it. And I'm not dogmatic about it. Living a life of purpose could look like having a lot of fun along the way. If that's meaningful to you, great. The point is that you're going through some kind of a deliberate process where you're identifying core values and trying to live from them, as opposed to having this sort of uh, whatever happens happens attitude that a lot of people take with their lives, and I think as a form of defense. And the goals that we set can often come with an implicit map of what we can focus on in the moment. They're a great tool for habit creation and behavior change because we understand our why. We understand why we're doing this thing. Why does it matter to us, right? It's not this kind of conceptual, uh, somebody told me it was a good idea. It has a feeling to us. And really connecting to that feeling and allowing yourself to feel it is such a great part of the process and has been profoundly useful for me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It was a pretty dense one, a lot of material in here. If you have any questions about it, feel free to reach out to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. Or hey, if you're watching on YouTube, you could also leave a comment. I'm curious which of these really end up resonating for people. Which of them did you particularly like? Which of them did you not relate to so much? Hey, let us know. If you've been enjoying the podcast and have somehow not subscribed to it yet, please take a moment to subscribe wherever you're listening to it now on. It really does help us out. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.